Book Two, Chapter Three, Sections One to Six of Mr. Britling Sees It Through by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter the Third, Malignity. One. And while the countryside of England changed steadily from its lax pacific amenity to the likeness of a rather slovenly armed camp, while long fixed boundaries shifted and dissolved, and a great irreparable wasting of the world's resources gathered way, Mr. Britling did his duty as a special constable, gave his eldest son to the territorials, entertained Belgians, petted his soldiers in the barn, helped Teddy to his commission, contributed to war charities, sold out securities at a loss, and subscribed to the war loan, and thought, thought endlessly about the war. He could think continuously, day by day, of nothing else. His mind was as caught as a galley slave, as unable to escape from tugging at this oar. All his universe was a magnetic field which oriented everything, whether he would have it so or not, to this one polar question. His thoughts grew firmer and clearer. They went deeper and wider. His first superficial judgments were endorsed and deepened or replaced by others. He thought along the lonely lanes at night. He thought at his desk. He thought in bed. He thought in his bath. He tried over his thoughts in essays and leading articles, and reviewed them and corrected them. Now and then came relaxation and lassitude, but never release. The war towered over him like a vigilant teacher, day after day, week after week, regardless of fatigue and impatience, holding a rod in its hand. 2. Certain things had to be forced upon Mr. Britling, because they jarred so greatly with his habits of mind that he would never have accepted them if he could have avoided doing so. Notably, he would not recognize at first the extreme bitterness of this war. He would not believe that the attack upon Britain and Western Europe generally expressed the concentrated emotion of a whole nation. He thought that the Allies were in conflict with a system and not with a national will. He fought against the persuasion that the whole mass of a great civilized nation could be inspired by a genuine and sustained hatred. Hostility was an uncongenial thing to him. He would not recognize that the greater proportion of human beings are more readily hostile than friendly. He did his best to believe in his and now war ends he did his best to make other people believe that this war was the perverse exploit of a small group of people of limited but powerful influences an outrage upon the general geniality of mankind the cruelty mischief and futility of war were so obvious to him that he was almost apologetic in asserting them he believed that war had but to begin and demonstrate its quality among the Western nations in order to unify them all against its repetition. They would exclaim, But we can't do things like this to one another. 
he saw the aggressive imperialism of Germany, called to account even by its own people. A struggle, a collapse, a liberal-minded conference of world powers, and a universal resumption of amiability upon a more assured basis of security. He believed, and many people in England believed with him, that a great section of the Germans would welcome triumphant allies as their liberators from intolerable political obsessions. The English, because of their insularity, had been political amateurs for endless generations. It was their supreme vice, it was their supreme virtue, to be easy-going. They had lived in an atmosphere of comedy, and denied in the whole tenor of their lives that life is tragic. Not even the Americans had been more isolated. The Americans had had their Indians, their Negroes, their war of secession. Until the Great War, the Channel was as broad as the Atlantic for holding off every vital challenge. Even Ireland was away, a four-hour crossing. And so the English had developed, to the fullest extent, the virtues and vices of safety and comfort. They had a hatred of science and dramatic behavior. They could see no reason for exactness or intensity. They disliked proceeding to extremes. Ultimately, everything would turn out all right. But they knew what it is to be carried into conflicts by energetic minorities and the trick of circumstances, and they were ready to understand the case of any other country which has suffered that fate. All their habits inclined them to fight good-temperedly and comfortably, to quarrel with a government and not with a people. It took Mr. Britling at least a couple of months of warfare to understand that the Germans were fighting in an altogether different spirit. The first intimations of this that struck upon his mind were the news of the behavior of the Kaiser and the Berlin crowd upon the declaration of war, and the violent treatment of the British subjects seeking to return to their homes. Everywhere such people had been insulted and ill-treated. It was the spontaneous expression of a long-gathered bitterness. While the British ambassador was being howled out of Berlin, the German ambassador to England was taking a farewell stroll quite unmolested in St. James Park. One item that struck particularly upon Mr. Britling's imagination was the story of the chorus of young women who assembled on the railway platform of the station through which the British ambassador was passing to sing, to his drawn blinds, Deutschland, Deutschland über alles. Mr. Britling could imagine those young people, probably dressed more or less uniformly in white, with flushed faces and shining eyes, letting their voices go full-throated in the modern German way. And then came stories of atrocities, stories of the shooting of old men and the butchery of children by the wayside, stories of wounded men bayoneted or burnt alive, of massacres of harmless citizens, of looting and filthy outrages. Mr. Britling did his utmost not to believe these things. They contradicted his habitual world. They produced horrible strains in his mind. 
they might, he hoped, be misreported so as to seem more violent or less justifiable than they were. They might be the acts of stray criminals and quite disconnected from the normal operations of the war. Here and there some weak-minded officer may have sought to make himself terrible. And as for the bombardment of cathedrals and the crime of Louvain, well, Mr. Britling was prepared to argue that Gothic architecture is not sacrosanct if military necessity cuts through it. It was only after the war had been going on some months that Mr. Britling's fluttering, unwilling mind was pinned down by official reports and a cloud of witnesses to a definite belief in the grim reality of systematic rape and murder, destruction, dirtiness, and abominable compulsions that blackened the first rush of the Prussians into Belgium and Champagne. They came, hating and threatening the lands they outraged. They sought occasion to do frightful deeds. When they could not be frightful in the houses they occupied, then to the best of their ability they were destructive and filthy. The facts took Mr. Britling by the throat. The first thing that really pierced Mr. Britling with the conviction that there was something essentially different in the English and the German attitude towards the war was the sight of a bale of German comic papers in the study of a friend in London. They were filled with caricatures of the Allies, and more particularly of the English, and they displayed a force and quality of passion, an incredible force and quality of passion. Their amazing hate and their amazing filthiness alike overwhelmed Mr. Britling. There was no appearance of national pride or national dignity, but a bellowing patriotism and a limitless desire to hurt and humiliate. They spat. They were red in the face, and they spat. He sat with these violent sheets in his hands, ashamed. But I say, he said feebly, it's the sort of thing that might come out of a lunatic asylum. One incredible craving was manifest in every one of them. The German caricaturist seemed unable to represent his enemies except in extremely tight trousers, or in none. He was equally unable to represent them without thrusting a sword or bayonet, spluttering blood into the more indelicate parts of their persons. This was the leitmotif of the war as the German humorists presented it. But, said Mr. Britling, these things can't represent anything like the general state of mind in Germany. They do said his friend. But it's blind fury, at the dirt-throwing stage. The whole of Germany is in that blind fury, said his friend. While we are going about astonished and rather incredulous about this war, and still rather inclined to laugh, that's the state of mind of Germany. There's a sort of deliberation in it. They think it gives them strength. They want to foam at the mouth. They do their utmost to foam more. They write themselves up. Have you heard of the hymn of hate? Mr. Britling had not. There was a translation of it in last week's Spectator. This is the sort of thing we are trying to fight in good temper and without extravagance. Listen, Britling. 
You will we hate with a lasting hate. We will never forgo our hate. Hate by water and hate by land. Hate of the head and hate of the hand. Hate of the hammer and hate of the crown. Hate of seventy millions choking down. We love as one, we hate as one. We have one foe and one alone, England. He read on to the end. Well, he said when he had finished reading, what do you think of it? I want to feel his bumps, said Mr. Britling after a pause. It's incomprehensible. They're singing that up and down Germany. Lissauer, I hear, has been decorated. It's stark malignity, said Mr. Britling. What have we done? It's colossal. What is to happen to the world if these people prevail? I can't believe it, even with this evidence before me. No, I want to feel their bumps. 3. You see, said Mr. Britling, trying to get it into focus, I have known quite decent Germans. There must be some sort of misunderstanding. I wonder what makes them hate us. There seems to me no reason in it. I think it is just thoroughness, said his friend. They are at war. To be at war is to hate. That isn't at all my idea. We're not a thorough people. When we think of anything, we also think of its opposite. When we adopt an opinion, we also take in a provisional idea that it is probably nearly as wrong as it is right. We are atmospheric. They are concrete. All this filthy, vile, unjust, and cruel stuff is honest, genuine war. We pretend war does not hurt. They know better. The Germans are a simple, honest people. It is their virtue. Possibly it is their only virtue. 4. Mr. Britling was only one of a multitude who wanted to feel the bumps of Germany at that time. The effort to understand a people who had suddenly become incredible was indeed one of the most remarkable facts in English intellectual life during the opening phases of the war. The English state of mind was unlimited astonishment. There was an enormous sale of any German books that seemed likely to illuminate the mystery of this amazing concentration of hostility. The works of Bernhardi, Treitschke, Nietzsche, Houston Stuart Chamberlain became the material of countless articles and interminable discussions. One saw little clerks on the way to the office, and workmen going home after their work earnestly reading these remarkable writers. They were asking, just as Mr. Britling was asking, what it was the British Empire had struck against. They were trying to account for this wild storm of hostility that was coming at them out of Central Europe. It was a natural next stage to this, when after all it became manifest that instead of there being a liberal and reluctant Germany at the back of imperialism and Junkerdom, there was apparently one solid and enthusiastic people, to suppose that the Germans were in some distinctive way evil, that they were racially more envious, arrogant, and aggressive than the rest of mankind. Upon that supposition a great number of English people settled. 
they concluded that the Germans had a peculiar devil of their own, and had to be treated accordingly. That was the second stage in the process of national apprehension, and it was marked by the first beginnings of a spy hunt, by the first denunciation of naturalized aliens, and by some anti-German rioting among the mixed alien population in the East End. Most of the bakers in the East End of London were Germans, and for some months after the war began they went on with their trade unmolested. Now many of these shops were wrecked. It was only in October that the British gave these first signs of a sense that they were fighting not merely political Germany, but the Germans. But the idea of a peculiar malignity in the German quality, as a key to the broad issue of the war, was even less satisfactory and less permanent in Mr. Britling's mind than his first crude opposition of militarism and a peaceful humanity as embodied respectively in the Central Powers and the Russo-Western Alliance. It led logically to the conclusion that the extermination of the German peoples was the only security for the general amiability of the world, a conclusion that appealed but weakly to his essential kindliness. After all, the Germans he had met and seen were neither cruel nor hate-inspired. He came back to that obstinately. From the harshness and vileness of the printed word and the unclean picture, he fell back upon the flesh and blood, the humanity and sterling worth of, as a sample, young Heinrich, who was, moreover, a thoroughly German young German, a thoroughly Prussian young Prussian. At times young Heinrich alone stood between Mr. Britling and the belief that Germany and the whole German race was essentially wicked, essentially a canting robber nation. Young Heinrich became a sort of advocate for his people before the tribunal of Mr. Britling's mind. And on his shoulder sat an absurdly pampered squirrel. Heinrich's fresh, pink, sedulous face very earnest, adjusting his glasses, saying, Please, intervened and insisted upon an arrest of judgment. Since the young man's departure, he had sent two postcards of greeting directly to the family Britling, and one letter through the friendly intervention of Mr. Britling's American publisher. Once also he sent a message through a friend in Norway, the postcards simply recorded stages in the passage of a distraught pacifist across Holland to his enrollment. The letter by way of America came two months later. He had been converted into a combatant with extreme rapidity. He had been trained for three weeks, had spent a fortnight in hospital with a severe cold, and had then gone to Belgium as a transport driver. His father had been a horse dealer, and he was familiar with horses. If anything happens to me, he wrote, please send my violin at least very carefully to my mother. It was characteristic that he reported himself as very comfortably quartered in Coutray with very nice people. The niceness involved restraints. Only never, he added, do we talk about the war. It is better not to do so. He mentioned the violin also in the later communication through Norway. 
Therein he lamented the lost flesh-pots of Coutray. He had been in Posen, and now he was in the Carpathians, up to his knees in snow, and very uncomfortable. And then, abruptly, all news from him ceased. Month followed month, and no further letter came. Something has happened to him. Perhaps he is a prisoner. I hope our little Heinrich hasn't got seriously damaged. He may be wounded. Or perhaps they stop his letters. Very probably they stop his letters. 5. Mr. Britling would sit in his armchair and stare at his fire, and recall conflicting memories of Germany, of a pleasant land, of friendly people. He had spent many a jolly holiday there. So recently as 1911 all the Britling family had gone up the Rhine from Rotterdam, had visited a string of great cities, and stayed for a cheerful month of sunshine at Neunkirchen in the Odenwald. The little village perches high among the hills and woods, and at its very centre is the inn and the linden tree and Adam Meyer. Or at least Adam Meyer was there. Whether he is there now, only the spirit of change can tell. If he live to be a hundred, no friendly English will ever again come tramping along by the track of the Blaue Breike or the Weisse Streike to enjoy his hospitality. There are rivers of blood between, and a thousand memories of hate. It was a village distended with hospitalities. Not only the inn, but all the houses about the place of the linden tree, the shoemakers, the postmistresses, the white house beyond, every house indeed except the pastor's house, were full of Adam Meyer's summer guests. And about it and over it went and soared Adam Meyer, seeing they ate well, seeing they rested well, seeing they had music and did not miss the moonlight. A host who forgot profit in hospitality, an innkeeper with the passion of an artist for his inn. Music, moonlight, the simple German sentiment, the hearty German voices, the great picnic in a Stuhlwang, the orderly round games the boys played with the German children, and the tramps and confidences Hugh had with Kurt and Karl, and at last a crowning jollification, a dance, with some gypsy musicians whom Mr. Britling discovered, when the Germans taught the English various entertaining sports, with baskets and potatoes and forfeits, and the English introduced the Germans to the license of the two-step. And everybody sang Britannia Rule the Waves and Deutschland, Deutschland über alles. And Adam Meyer got on a chair and made a tremendous speech, more in dialect than ever. And there was much drinking of beer and syrups in the moonlight under the linden. Afterwards there had been a periodic sending of postcards and greetings, which indeed only the war had ended. Right pleasant people those Germans had been, sun and green leaf lovers, for whom Frischauf seemed the most natural of national cries. Mr. Britling thought of the individual Germans who had made up the assembly, of the men's amusingly fierce little hats of green and blue, 
with an inevitable feather thrust perkily into the hat-band behind, of the kindly plumpnesses behind their turned-up moustaches, of the blonde sedentary women, very wise about the comforts of life, and very kind to the children, of their earnest pleasure in landscape and art and great writers, of their general frequent desire to sing, of their plasticity under the directing hands of Adam Meyer. He thought of the mellow South German landscape, rolling away broad and fair, of the little clean red-roofed townships, the old castles, the big prosperous farms, the neatly marked pedestrian routes, the hospitable inns, and the artless, abundant Ausichtürms. He saw all those memories now through a veil of indescribable sadness, as of a world lost, gone down like the cities of Lioness beneath deep seas. Right pleasant people in a sunny land! Yet here, pressing relentlessly upon his mind, were the murders of Visa, the massacres of Dinan, the massacres of Louvain, murder red-handed and horrible upon an inoffensive people, foully invaded, foully treated, murder done with a sickening cant of righteousness and racial pretension. The two pictures would not stay steadily in his mind together. When he thought of the broken faith that had poured those slaughtering hosts into the decent peace of Belgium, that had smashed her cities, burnt her villages, and filled the pretty gorges of the Ardennes with blood and smoke and terror, he was flooded with self-righteous indignation, a self-righteous indignation that was, indeed, entirely Teutonic in its quality, that for a time drowned out his former friendship and every kindly disposition towards Germany, that inspired him with destructive impulses, and obsessed him with the desire to hear of death and more death and yet death in every German town and home. 6. It will be an incredible thing to the happier reader of a coming age, if ever this poor record of experience reaches a reader in the days to come, to learn how much of the mental life of Mr. Britling was occupied at this time with the mere horror and atrocity of warfare. It is idle and hopeless to speculate now how that future reader will envisage this war. It may take on broad dramatic outlines. It may seem a thing just, logical, necessary, the burning of many barriers, the destruction of many obstacles. Mr. Britling was too near to the dirt and pain and heat for any such broad landscape consolations. Every day some new detail of evil beat into his mind. Now it would be the artless story of some Belgian refugee. There was a girl from a lost in the village, for example, who had heard the fusillade that meant the shooting of citizens, the shooting of people she had known. She had seen the still blood-stained wall against which two murdered cousins had died, the streaked sand along which their bodies had been dragged. Three German soldiers had been quartered in her house with her and her invalid mother, and had talked freely of the massacres in which they had been employed. One of them was, in civil life, a young schoolmaster, and he had had, he said, to kill a woman and a baby, 
the girl had been incredulous. Yes, he had done so. Of course he had done so. His officer had made him do it, had stood over him. He could do nothing but obey. But since then he had been unable to sleep, unable to forget. We had to punish the people, he said. They had fired on us. And besides, his officer had been drunk. It had been impossible to argue. His officer had an unrelenting character at all times. Over and over again, Mr. Britling would try to imagine that young schoolmaster soldier at a lost. He imagined, with a weak staring face and watery blue eyes behind his glasses, and that memory of murder. Then again it would be some incident of death and mutilation in Antwerp that Mr. Vonderpont described to him. The Germans in Belgium were shooting women frequently, not simply for grave spying, but for trivial offences. Then came the battleship raid on Whitby and Scarborough, and the killing, among other victims, of a number of children on their way to school. This shocked Mr. Britling absurdly, much more than the Belgian crimes had done. They were English children, at home. The drowning of a great number of people on a torpedoed ship full of refugees from Flanders filled his mind with pitiful imaginings for days. The Zeppelin raids, with their slow crescendo of blood-stained futility, began before the end of 1914. It was small consolation for Mr. Britling to reflect that English homes and women and children were, after all, undergoing only the same kind of experience that our ships have inflicted scores of times in the past upon innocent people in the villages of Africa and Polynesia. Each month the war grew bitterer and more cruel. Early in 1915 the Germans began their submarine war, and for a time Mr. Britling's concern was chiefly for the sailors and passengers of the ships destroyed. He noted with horror the increasing indisposition of the German submarines to give any notice to their victims. He did not understand the grim reasons that were turning every submarine attack into a desperate challenge of death. For the Germans under the seas had pitted themselves against a sea power far more resourceful, more steadfast and skillful, sterner and more silent than their own. It was not for many months that Mr. Britling learnt the realities of the submarine blockade. Submarine after submarine went out of the German harbours into the North Sea, never to return. No prisoners were reported, no boasting was published by the British fishers of men. U-boat after U-boat vanished into a chilling mystery. Only later did Mr. Britling begin to hear whispers and form ideas of the noiseless, suffocating grip that sought through the waters for its prey. The Falaba crime, in which the German sailors were reported to have jeered at the drowning victims in the water, was followed by the sinking of the Lusitania. At that a wave of real anger swept through the empire. Hate was begetting hate at last. 
there were violent riots in Great Britain and in South Africa. Wretched little German hairdressers and bakers and so forth fled for their lives to pay for the momentary satisfaction of the Kaiser and Herr Balin. Scores of German homes in England were wrecked and looted, hundreds of Germans maltreated. War is war. Hard upon the Lusitania storm came the publication of the Bryce Report, with its relentless array of witnesses, its particulars of countless acts of cruelty and arrogant unreason and uncleanness in Belgium and the occupied territory of France. Came also the gasping torture of gas, the use of flame-jets, and a new exacerbation of the savagery of the actual fighting. For a time it seemed as though the taking of prisoners along the western front would cease. Tales of torture and mutilation, tales of the kind that arise nowhere and out of nothing, and poison men's minds to the most pitiless retaliations, drifted along the opposing fronts. The realities were evil enough without any rumors. Over various dinner-tables Mr. Britling heard this and that first-hand testimony of harshness and spite. One story that stuck in his memory was of British prisoners on the journey into Germany, being put apart at a station from their French companions in misfortune, and forced to run the gauntlet back to their train between the fists and bayonets of files of German soldiers. And there were convincing stories of the same prisoners, robbed of overcoats in bitter weather, baited with dogs, separated from their countrymen, and thrust among Russians and Poles with whom they could hold no speech. So Lissauer's hate-song bore its fruit in a thousand cruelties to wounded and defenseless men. The English had cheated great Germany of another easy victory like that of seventy-one. They had to be punished. That was all too plainly the psychological process. At one German station a woman had got out of a train and crossed a platform to spit on the face of a wounded Englishman. And there was no monopoly of such things on either side. At some journalistic gathering Mr. Britling met a little white-faced resolute lady who had recently been nursing in the north of France. She told of wounded men lying among the coal of coal-sheds, of a shortage of nurses and every sort of material, of an absolute refusal to permit any share in such things to reach the German swine. Why have they come here? Let our own boys have it first. Why couldn't they stay in their own country? Let the filth die! Two soldiers impressed to carry a wounded German officer on a stretcher had given him a joy-ride, pitching him up and down as one tosses a man in a blanket. He was lucky to get off with that. All our men aren't angels, said a cheerful young captain back from the front. If you had heard a little group of our East London boys talking of what they meant to do when they got into Germany, you'd feel anxious. But that was just talk, said Mr. Britling weakly, after a pause. There were times when Mr. Britling's mind was imprisoned beyond any hope of escape amidst such monstrous realities. 
he was ashamed of his one secret consolation. For nearly two years yet, Hugh could not go out to it. There would surely be peace before that. End of Book Two, Chapter Three, Sections One to Six.